Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 22, A Common Enemy. They came by train and coach, wearing old uniforms of Union blue and Confederate gray, carrying knives and pistols, men who knew what it was like to serve in an army. In late March and early April 1866, they arrived in towns like Eastport and Lubeck and and little villages along the St. Croix River, all along the border between Maine and New Brunswick. And they instigated a terror all through the maritime colonies. For these men were rumored to be the Fenians, the radical Irish revolutionaries who wanted to invade British North America. They planned to capture British-controlled Campobello Island off the coast of Maine. If they could hold the island, they could declare officially the existence of an Irish Republic and become not pirates or revolutionaries, but belligerents in an international conflict. The Americans would have to recognize them as an almost nation-state. So when they raided British vessels and planned further attacks, these would be acts of war and not piracy. That, at least, was the idea. Their success depended on surprise, on attacking so swiftly that they could take the island ahead of the arrival of British ships and troops. But that wasn't going to happen. As soon as the men began arriving on the border, news spread, and the locals began to organize a response. So the Fenians instead hoped for complacency, that the British New Brunswickers would grow frustrated that the rumored attack never came, and then relax their guard. There was also the issue of getting hold of rifles. The Fenian leadership had sent a cache of at least 500 rifles separately from its volunteers, hiring a ship to bring the weapons to Eastport. If the Fenians could get access to this cache, they would instantly have a great many more options. In New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, the war scare spread all through that late spring. Remember, the British initially thought the attack would come by mid-March on St. Patrick's Day. But when the St. Patrick's Day attack failed to arrive, local authorities weren't reassured. It didn't help that the Fenians in Eastport kept holding public meetings to stir up resentment. By mid-April, they had released an address to the citizens of New Brunswick, which seemed almost designed to drive the Maritimers into the arms of Confederation. The address claimed that the Confederation project was but an attempt to, quote, bind you in effect forms of monarchism. Now, the only option wasn't annexation to the United States, there was a third option, one of independence, obviously under a a new Irish Republic. All the New Brunswickers had to do, the address claimed, was to signify your wishes and you become the founders of a free state, untrammeled by royalty, unchecked by misrule, and certain to secure all the lost benefits of reciprocity. The last one was a a nice touch, promising commercial connections to the United States and everything that the current government seemed unable to deliver. In reality, this kind of messaging simply drove the Maritimers back towards Confederation. The British squadron sent ships to the area with hundreds of regulars aboard. By mid-April, the British and local militia units in the area numbered over 5,000. 
and that was on top of the American Navy ships, which finally arrived, determined to put an end to the fiasco. One group of Fenians, frustrated by the fact that they were just sitting around week after week, escaped one night over to Indian Island, a tiny island on the New Brunswick side of the border, and accosted a customs house, stealing a Union Jack flag. The American government ordered the seizure of the ship holding Fenian weapons, and the Fenian leadership realized that all was lost. Day by day, the Fenians who had gathered in such hope began slipping out of the border towns, returning home disappointed. It took several weeks, but the threat gradually receded without any actual attack on Campobello Island. But that didn't mean shots weren't fired. Another group of angry Fenians slipped back over to Indian Island and again attacked the customs house, this time setting it to the torch. The shots that locals fired at the backs of the retreating Fenians were the only shots fired in this pathetic incident of threatened but impotent invasion. It might have seemed like almost nothing, but if supporters of Confederation had wanted to invent a scenario better suited to driving Maritimers back towards the project of British North American Union, they could hardly come up with something better than the Fenian threat. Even as the Fenians huddled in their hotels in Maine and British vessels patrolled the waters, the politics of both Nova Scotia and New Brunswick became obsessed by the Fenian threat, and many drew a clear connection between this threat and the need to unify together the various colonies of British North America. Nothing draws people together like a common enemy, and the Fenians were just that. Okay, so what had happened in March and April of 1866 to change the fortunes of Confederation? Let's, let's start with Nova Scotia. Ever since coming back to the colony after the Quebec Conference of 1864, Charles Tupper and the Confederates had been waiting you might even say lurking, too afraid to press the issue. Fearful that the anti-Confederates, spurred on by things like the anonymous anti-botheration letters of one Joseph Howe, too afraid that they would defeat Confederation in the colony. Better to wait for a likely opportunity, just the right moment, when the winds of fortune blew in their direction. The spring of 1866 provided just such a moment. With rising fears of Fenian attacks, the whole of the colony spurred itself into action. The Royal Navy squadrons based in Halifax set off to guard the Bay of Fundy against possible attack. And then on the 7th of March, with fears of an attack to come on St. Patrick's Day, Tupper called out the militia to active duty. If the Fenians attacked, who knew what was possible? Perhaps even annexation to the United States. And with anti-Americanism and pro-British sentiment now stoked hot, the Confederates in the colony began to think that this would be the perfect time to move forward on that scheme of British North American Union that Britain had made plain that it wanted enacted. Certainly, Governor William Fenwick Williams believed this to be the case. Williams had been busy pushing Confederation in the way governors always had promoted their objectives by opening up his wine cellars. Williams wined and dined the Nova Scotian assemblymen, attempting to woo former aunties into the Confederate camp, and he seemed to be making some progress. It all centered on one idea, on the possibility that perhaps if the 
Quebec resolutions hadn't been sufficient, if the last conference hadn't made union palatable, well then, perhaps this didn't mean that the whole scheme had to be thrown overboard. Perhaps what the Nova Scotians needed was to call for a new conference. It was an attractive offer in the Maritimes where the principle of British North American Union was popular in theory, if not in practice. On the 3rd of April, Williams finally got his wish when one of those whom he had been wooing rose in the House of Assembly and made exactly this motion, proposing another conference. With Fenians massing in the towns of Maine and with British troops leaving Halifax to guard the province, what could be more reasonable at exactly this juncture than a gesture of goodwill from Nova Scotia towards British North American Union? Of course, Joseph Howe was furious. He found the whole thing to be just a little too much of a coincidence, and he said so in several public letters that he wrote in early April. Sure, Howe said, this moment of international peril was exactly the wrong time to be opening up divisive constitutional questions. Yet, for those in the assembly, Howe might as well have been shouting into a loud, brisk wind. The Premier Tupper rose in the Assembly and proposed himself in favour of a new conference. Assemblyman after Assemblyman, having spent some time drinking of William's wine and being convinced of the logic of such a plan, rose and spoke in favour of this newly important idea. On the 17th of April, late in the night, the Nova Scotia Assembly voted on this motion and passed the resolution in favour of a new conference on Confederation. Howe was furious, calling it a, a wretched intrigue and passed at black midnight. Regardless, the motion did pass, and Nova Scotia had come round to the idea of confederation, or at least one more conference. One of the reasons Tupper had felt so safe to finally act in Nova Scotia was because of what had just transpired in New Brunswick. And no, I'm not talking about the Fenians here. We left New Brunswick last week with an anti-Confederate government tottering but still trying to keep itself astride power in the colony. Two ministers had resigned, the government had failed to get anything done on the Western Extension Railway or to extend the Reciprocity Treaty, and Governor Arthur Gordon was determined to get Confederation through and believed that his own successful career in the British diplomatic service depended on it. So Gordon was increasingly open to more and more brazen postures to push the Premier Smith into action. And if not Smith, then perhaps someone else. The massed horde of Fenians on the border added a, a dash of spicy intrigue and violence to the whole mix, especially with those who wanted to claim that the anti-Confederate cause was itself now almost a kind of disloyalty. It was at this point that Governor Gordon worked his own intrigue. It came from the most unlikely of sources, from the Legislative Council of New Brunswick. That is, the upper chamber that responsible government had made almost redundant by this point. It just so happened that a majority of members in the Legislative Council favoured Confederation. And so, even as the Smith government tried to steer clear of taking on Confederation that spring, the Legislative Council decided that it might have its own say. The Council passed a motion extolling the benefits of Confederation. Now this on its own might have done little. However, Arthur Gordon decided to turn the motion into a constitutional crisis set to bring down Smith's government. 
That's because Gordon decided to ignore Smith's advice, that is, ignore the advice of his premier to whom he was supposed to listen, and instead officially receive the motion from the Legislative Council on his own regard. What's more, Gordon didn't hold back. He said he rejoiced at this body's desire to seek a union of the colonies of British North America. Smith couldn't believe it. This went directly against the practices of responsible government. Here was the governor essentially acting on his own against the wishes of the elected government. Smith and his government could do nothing else but to resign in protest. And so that's exactly what they did. By mid-April, the anti-government was out. Gordon then invited back in Leonard Tilley and the pro-Confederates. They promptly accepted office and then called for a dissolution of the legislature and a new election. New Brunswick would be going back to the polls to yet again face an election that was, at least in part, centered on Confederation. This time, though, the scene had changed considerably. The former Premier Smith hoped to rouse the population against the outrageous actions of Governor Gordon, who had so clearly flouted the expectations of a governor in a responsible government. The governor ought to have waited on the advice of his prime minister, not sallied off to joyfully accept statements of policy that went explicitly against what the government had heretofore claimed was its policy. The representative of the crown in a responsible government had no such power, or at least that was how things were supposed to work. The problem for Smith was that the sentiments in New Brunswick had changed from the previous year. It isn't so much that the people approved of Gordon's actions as it was that many were now unhappy with the Smith government. The antis had failed to deliver on their many promises. And now, with the feared Fenian invasion on everyone's minds, pro-British and pro-Confederation sympathies were running high. It didn't hurt that the Canadians were sending huge wads of cash eastward to help buy up the portion of the vote which could be purchased with drink and other emoluments. When the election was finally over in June of 1866, pro-Confederates had won a huge majority. Smith and his supporters retained only eight seats in the legislature, making a dramatic reversal from the previous year. Elections give and they take, and in early June 1866, the electors of New Brunswick gave a huge boost to the chances of Confederates all over British North America. And yes, it is striking that the only seats Smith retained were in the far northeast of New Brunswick, away from the region most affected by the Fenian scare. Now, at this point, you might be inclined to think like Joseph Howe and wonder if the whole Fenian scare had just been a, a clever concoction, conspiratorially invented to scare the Maritimers into a hasty union with Canada. But the Canadians, and all British North Americans, were about to realize that the Fenian dog knew how to bite as well as bark. The Fenians were divided into two separate factions who promoted different strategies of attacking Britain. Ironically, the faction that had organized the raid of Campobella Island had been the one group least interested in North American action, but they'd been pushed into the raid by the strong activity of the other faction that was planning to attack British North America. So when the Campobello Island raid turned into such a dud, 
it left the mistaken impression that the Fenians had failed in their attack and that they couldn't really muster much, if anything. This was on top of the St. Patrick's Day attack that didn't happen, but for which Canada had mustered 10,000 militia. What that meant is that the Canadians were a bit taken off guard when that other Fenian faction, the one actually interested in attacking Canada, finally got its act together. They planned a multi-pronged attack, bringing thousands of Fenians from all across America up north, gathering initially in towns like Buffalo, New York, Cleveland, Ohio. The Fenians hoped to attack across the lake from Cleveland and across the river from Buffalo. They also planned to raid Canada East, coming north from Lake Champlain. The first real signs of trouble came at the very end of May 1866, when British officials in Buffalo, New York, sent reports that hundreds of Fenians were coming into the city. A Canadian spy was in the town, and he tried, belatedly, to warn the Canadian government. Late in the evening of the 31st of May, a large group of Fenians marched south of Buffalo and boarded barges, armed with weapons. They sailed up to the small town of Fort Erie that guarded the entrance to the Niagara River. Anywhere from 800 to 1,000 Fenians got off the boat and proceeded to take the fight to British North America. The Canadians weren't ready, not initially anyway. Militia units rushed in from all over the colony, but initially it was up to the local volunteers to deal with the attack. Operating without any cavalry and so unable to scout ahead effectively and to get a better idea of what the enemy, the Fenians, were doing, Canadian militia units approached the Fenian force the next day. The commander received reports that the Fenians had been spotted carousing in a nearby town, already drunk, he'd heard. Now, believing this report, the militia units decided to break from the plan of attack and not wait for reinforcements before engaging with the invaders. It wasn't a good decision. The Fenians and Canadian militia faced off against each other in a, a mix of terrain, ranging from forests to wheat fields, just west of Fort Erie, and just down from a, a limestone ridge, giving the name to the skirmish, the Battle of Ridgeway. Nothing that happened in the Battle of the 2nd of June, 1866, covered anyone in glory. The Fenians had the advantage of experience. Many were veterans of the American War who had faced combat. They could efficiently load and reload their rifles amidst the smoke and noise of battle. They were so fast that at this time, some Canadian observers thought the Fenians had even better quick-loading rifles than they in fact did. Almost all of the Canadian militia had only fired their rifles in practice drills. The two sides engaged each other across a, a broad front, but mostly at some distance from the other group, anywhere from 200 to 400 yards. So any historical pictures you see which show the two sides lined up against each other in orderly formation on open fields at close range, and you can indeed see such images, are pretty much wrong. In reality, the leaders on both sides barely knew what was happening in the field. The whole conflict seems to have turned on some bad signals. Someone on the Canadian side believed the Fenians were approaching with cavalry, and so a bugler signaled for the troops to form into a square, the tactic infantry used to repel cavalry. The only problem was that there was no cavalry. Realizing this, 
and that the bunched formation square would only make them an easier target, the buglers rang out more signals to override their previous orders. At just this time, the Fenians stepped up their barrage and pushed forward. The mix of, of rapid signals and then the increased Fenian aggression created confusion in the Canadian lines. Even more so when the Canadian buglers sounded out again, this time calling for a retreat. A few units managed to stage an orderly retreat, but many simply fled the field. And that was it. A short skirmish. The battle killed relatively few, fewer than 10 on either side, but it was the Canadians who fled the field. Soldiers of the hoped-for Irish Republic could say that they had won a battle. Still, the Fenians weren't especially hopeful. Their leader had believed, wrongly he could now see, that he was but one part of a larger attack. Other units were also supposed to be advancing into Canadian territory. Yet, when he went back to Fort Erie and quickly routed another group of Canadians who had come into the town, the expected reinforcements hadn't arrived. He knew there were still thousands of Fenians on the American side of the river. Why had they not come to reinforce him? With so many more Canadian militia units descending on the area, and with limited troops and ammunition, the Fenians could do nothing else but retreat back across the river. They had won a, a glorious victory over the British, or at least that's how they could later tell the story, even though the British in this case were essentially all Canadian militia units. The Fenians boarded barges and headed off for New York State. However, by this time, the Americans had been alerted to all the activities, and now that the attack had actually taken place, the American military was willing to enforce the neutrality laws. If the Fenian scare was only just that, a potential threat, the Americans were reluctant to intervene and damage relations with Irish-American voters. But once Fenians actually crossed the border, American officials did step up to prevent further reinforcements coming across the border and capturing those attempting to come back. So American ships captured the Fenians mid-river and took the leadership into custody. Now, don't feel too bad for the Fenians, though. The commanding officer would be charged, but then the charges would be dropped. And in order to de-escalate the conflict, the Americans offered an amnesty and a train trip home to all Fenians in the area who agreed to give up the conflict and go home. Not a bad fate, really, for attempting to invade a neighboring friendly country. It wasn't over, though. Only a few days later, another band of Fenians tried again. This time, they initially gathered in St. Albans, Vermont, that great border town which has already played such a key role in our story when southern Confederates raided the town before fleeing back to Canada East. This time, almost a thousand Fenians gathered at St. Albans in early June. The only problem was that with the action on the Niagara frontier and steady reports of their numbers coming northwards, they had little hope of surprising the Canadians. Volunteer units and regular British forces waited near the border. That didn't stop the Fenians, though. A large Fenian group crossed the border and proceeded about a mile inside. Now, once there, they were, like many armies, mostly concerned with getting something to eat. So they proceeded to forage from the nearby farms. And by forage, I mean go and steal food and many other items of value from the farms whose owners had, by this point, fled. 
They weren't there more than a day when the sight of approaching Canadian units made them reconsider their plans. They had hoped all along to inspire more volunteers to come merely by the fact that the Fenians had entered onto British soil and planted the green Republican Irish flag. With no reinforcements coming, the Americans had shut off the border by this point, and not enough ammunition, almost all of the Fenians fled back across the border. Only one group of about 200 stayed long enough to face off against Canadians and British troops. When the British officers ordered a charge, instructing the men to attack using the blunt side of their cavalry swords so as to capture prisoners, the Fenians turned and ran. They were chased all the way to the border where American troops waited, disarming and immediately arresting the Fenians once they crossed the line. This was early June of 1866. As we've already seen, this was the time that the final results had come in for the New Brunswick election. The invasions showed the Fenian threat to not just be a mirage that appeared across the border and then disappeared. Actual Irish Republicans had entered British North America and defeated a militia force on Canadian soil. A lot can change in a few short months. In New Brunswick, there was a new government. This one committed to pursuing confederation of British North America. In the immediate aftermath of the election and of the Fenian invasions, our old friend Leonard Tilly was back in a new pro-confederation ministry. The government moved a resolution almost identical to the pro-confederation resolution that Nova Scotia had recently passed. It called for a union of the colonies of British North America, making no mention of the Quebec resolutions, insisting on an intercolonial railway, all good there, and calling for another conference to decide on the final details. The resolution passed the New Brunswick Assembly with a resounding majority on June 25th. Only a year earlier, another New Brunswick election had seemed to doom the whole Confederation scheme. Now, with the rise of the Fenian threat manifested not only in the faint maneuvers on Campobello Island, but in real invasions along the Niagara frontier and in Canada East. And with the collapse of the anti-Confederation government, helped along by the rather dubious actions of our old friend Arthur Gordon, the entire scene had changed. Now, admittedly, P.E.I. and Newfoundland were silent, but at least for the moment they weren't necessary. The two major maritime colonies had come on side. Maybe, just maybe, this whole creation of a new nation thing might happen. Maybe the champagne-fueled speeches given by the drunken delegates aboard that ship in the Charlottetown Harbor might come to fruition. Thanks so much for listening to 1867 and all that. We are almost there. We're in the the summer of 1866. Next week, we're heading off, eventually, to London, where the Canadians, New Brunswickers, and Nova Scotians are going to do one more conference. Johnny MacDonald is going to almost burn himself to death, and everyone is going to get what was called the, the Duchess Treatment, where colonial politicians are wined and dined by British aristocrats in the hope that they won't notice or won't mind that the British politicians in Westminster are having their way with important matters. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show, please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, spread the news about the show, and drop me a line if you like. 
Uh, if you really, really like the show, please consider becoming a patron for $5 a month or more. Uh, you can help me keep the show online in perpetuity. All the details are in this week's show notes. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. <laughs>